It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? You're listening to That's Pretty Dark. The podcast where we talk about all of the entertainment that scared us as children. And still haunts us as adults. So grab your flashlight and join us as we take a frightfully nostalgic look over our shoulders. And under our beds. And in our closets. And together we'll realize, well, that's pretty dark. That's pretty dark. You know what really beats the existential dread? What's that? Listening to That's Pretty Dark podcast. Oh, <laughs> oh snap. See, it increases it for me because I hear myself speaking and that just makes everything worse. But for everyone else, yes, I think that applies. Yeah, it's true because we got a lot of really great feedback, you guys. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. It's truly phenomenal to hear that anybody enjoyed it at all because I've been expecting to just talk to Christian and that <laughs> was okay with me. So it's nice to hear that I'm you know, talking to some other folks too. Uh-huh. Well, it's all downhill from here because now we're going to start overthinking the fact that yep. people are listening. Yeah, hopefully you enjoy it. Our demise, our mental spirals. <laughs> Do you know what made me happy last night? Oh, uh, what was that? I was driving home from Birmingham and I was thinking, because I listen to podcasts when I drive distances, and I was thinking about it's possible that we'll accompany people as they travel mm-hmm. on their journeys. And I just thought that was so lovely. It was such <laughs> a nice thought in my head. That's a nice thought. So if you're driving right now, shout out to you. <laughs> I like to think that we're uh, accompanying people on their you know life journey, their travel through. Oh, even better. The you know wow. existential plane. This plane. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? Existential? Yeah. Am I just stuck on that word right now? No, that's a good word. I think that's right. I don't know. This existential plane. Maybe I'm just feeling extra. The spiritual plane? The spiritual? No, it's the physical, the literal plane that we're all on this right now. This physical plane? This physical plane. We are souls in a physical plane. That's our comedy album. Oh, our comedy. I didn't know <laughs> we were going to do a comedy album. That's ambitious. This is not a comedy podcast. Can you tell? By how much you're not laughing right now? <laughs> the lack of laughter. The silence that you hear the in your head and around you. <laughs> That's the yes. indicator. The perpetual crickets. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you but, made it to round yeah, two. Thanks for listening. You made it to round two. We're uh-huh. so excited to kick off part two of this uh, series about the dark origins of children's programming. Mm-hmm. This is the sequel. That's right. We're all back here together. And uh, we're happy to be here. Very, very happy to be here. And I'm Christian. And I'm Kaylin. And you're you. <laughs> Oh, you. And we're going to stop wasting your time and get right into it. So give us a summary of what happened last time, (laughs) Kaylin. Oh, well, last time we talked about all of these um, very dark things that happened in the 60s and 70s around culture and children and their growth and development. Well said. And we let ourselves right to the doorstep of the 80s and then we had to go. So Mm. this time we're going to come back right after Reagan has made his decree and tell you how that affected. <laughs> he's made his decree. He's yes. made his decree. Everything goes. Very well, good. Technically, it technically wasn't Reagan. It was his, not his chief well, of Well, no. Who it, did you say it, it was? It was, it was Reagan. You just said it. Mark Fowler. Mark Fowler. He was the one that made it, kind of made it possible for uh, all the broadcasters and programmers to basically do whatever they wanted and like put out all this junk television for children and advertise to them and try to sell them products. And then, you know, the world got its act together and was like, hey, we should probably put a stop to this. Congress was like, we should probably uh, make you chill the F out. And then 
Reagan vetoed their bill that they had set forward. So, yes. <clears throat> so it was Reagan in the end. In the end, you know, so we did have a true ending to our, to our film. This is the sequel. <laughs> it was always Reagan. And then we were asking ourselves, hmm, why didn't anybody stop this? Right. Well, grab your flashlights, everybody, because it's about to get pretty dark. Throughout the 70s and 80s, thanks to the relative independence of Generation X and their latchkey kids, there was a devastating and terrifying increase in the number of children all across the nation just going missing. Yeah. You can see a lot of this in pop culture, which I will reference in a minute, but like, I never realized until I listened to the In the Dark podcast how rampant it was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why was the 80s, why were they obsessed with kids disappearing? Because it was happening everywhere. Yeah. For whatever reason, there was a boom in high-profile crime throughout these decades. We're talking organized crime families like the mafia running big cities like New York and Chicago, which you told me to watch that one documentary about Cropsy. all the gangs of New York, basically. Oh, that one too, yes. That one? There are a what was it called? No, the one about the gangs of New York was uh, Fear City. Fear City, yeah. Mm-hmm. That one was really good. Sorry, I was thinking of a totally different one, also all about kids disappearing in the 80s. Oh, what was in that? In New York, Cropsy. Cropsy. I haven't seen that, but okay, I Okay, you watch need that. to watch that okay. one. And so do you, listener. <laughs> so do you, listener. Um, so not just organized crime families, but we're talking serial killers and an increase in violent crimes against women. And of course, we're talking child predators and an mm. increase in violent crimes against children, which is mostly what we're here to discuss today. Ooh. But don't worry. If true crime isn't your thing, this is not a true crime podcast. We will touch on topics like this, but we are not going to get egregious. We're not going to get into too many of the details. I'm going to gloss over a lot of- This is purely for historical- Research. So if you're thinking, oh, I can't stomach this, don't worry. You can. We're all going to get through this together. It's not not as bad as you're thinking. You're not alone. And if you do love true crime, here's your little dose of true crime. (laughs) But I'm sorry, it's not going to get as disgusting as a lot of true crime podcasts like to do. Um, I love true crime. Same. We can we can merely touch. I on mean, it. I hate crime. Crime is terrible. Hate crime. I appreciate true crime. Tr- hmm. I appreciate <laughs> true crime. Cool crime. <laughs> it's cool crime time. Uh, that's right. I appreciate true c- crime podcasts and entertainment, quote unquote, because it tells the v- stories of the victims. It gives voices to victims, and it brings awareness yes. to yes the crime. Awareness. Awareness is a huge thing. That's why I appreciate it. Right. I'm not just like a glutton for, you know, terrible, horrible things, which we all kind of I am being here together. We are. But, but I mean, I don't want to hear that anyone was killed or kidnapped. No, or hurt. Of you know, not. you never revel in that knowledge. But if you are concerned, don't worry. You're fine. We're all we're all safe. That's the main message is that mm. we're all safe. It's dark out there, but we're we're all safe here together. Mm. As the media is wont to do, forever and ever, they took a few of the more sensational cases of these kids going missing or kids being harmed in some way and began force feeding every detail mm-hmm. to anyone shocked enough and mesmerized enough and afraid enough to sit there and watch these investigations unfold. Uh, like slowing down to get a really good look at a car wreck as you pass it by, right? We just, we need to see it. We None of us are unfamiliar know. with this. It's still prevalent. I mean, when this stuff started happening and the media was like, oh, people want to watch this. Mm-hmm. It just, it was everywhere. Again, viewership, money. Viewership, money, numbers. It's everything. It's all about money. 
Capitalism. I'm sorry for all my weird capitalism jingles, but like it, that's what it is. <laughs> no, we're good. We're here for it. Um, there were PSAs from like G.I. Joe characters and McGruff, the, the crime go. doll. Here we go. Right? Mm-hmm. There were made for TV movies about child abuse and abductions. It was ingrained deep in the collective unconscious and led to a kind of mass hysteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents were fingerprinting their children just in case they went missing. There were fingerprint like missing children kits, like where you could like put all your kids' DNA yeah. inside of it. So if a kid was found or if there was a kid like, as did happen sometimes, like was abducted, kidnapped, mm-hmm. raised, and then you find it later, later? they can yeah. prove that it's you, like DNA stuff, Man. which DNA wasn't as big of a thing in the 80s. It was becoming more common. Then it was mostly fingerprinting. It's insane to me how late in the game DNA was introduced to crime. Like every documentary I watched, a crime, any crime documentary. The Juice. What? OJ Simpson. Oh, okay. There was DNA evidence to prove he did the it. Juice. And people didn't trust it. You're right. People didn't trust it because people don't trust science. Yeah. Sorry. They didn't trust, the jury didn't trust the science behind it. They didn't, they didn't believe it because it was so brand new. Crazy. Anyway, so that's all a <laughs> tangent. But I mean, it was, people were so hysterical. Like daycare providers were being accused of more and more heinous crimes against the children they were watching. Like literally there was like, oh, this, you know, she was performing satanic rituals on my kids. Like oh my got crazy. I mean, we're not even into satanic panic uh, territory yet. But there was it was starting in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So the, the news pumped out more of these kinds of stories fueling the fire until America displayed a general obsession with the idea of children being harmed or, worst case scenario, totally vanishing. Without going into too much detail, as I said, I wouldn't, these higher profile cases included um, Aton Patz, Johnny Gosh, and Adam Walsh who is the son of John Walsh, who became the host of America's Most Wanted, and who now serves on the board of directors for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, mm-hmm. uh, which plays a pretty big role in our narrative yeah. today. Wow. So if you were around that in that time, or if you listen to any kind of true crime, you probably know those stories of how these kids went missing or mm-hmm. how they were found. Um, in 1984, mm-hmm. Anderson Erickson Dairy Company, I don't know why I said company like that. <laughs> Printed the images of two local paper boys who had gone missing on their like paper routes. Uh, they they printed their images on their milk cartons. Uh, this was Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin. This was viewed as a brilliant idea, seeing as how pretty much every family bought milk, right? Yeah, you'd have to see their face. It was just one of those common things. I wonder why they didn't put it on like a loaf of bread. Plastic, I don't know. <laughs> Probably because milk cartons were paper. And anyway, I'm sure there are right. very good yeah, reasons well, for that. It's because they were paper. They were easy to print on. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't that they just decided to print stuff on uh, products people buy. It was just that a dairy company That's did That's right. It. You're right. That's it. Yep. And it, it came from dairy companies and everybody just took hold of it. Mm-hmm. A similar program popped up in Chicago that same year. And the National... Uh, Child Safety Council seized this idea and created a nationwide program called the Missing Children Milk Carton Program. And they're the ones who really popularized it. Mm -hmm. By March of 1985, almost half of the independent dairy companies in the U.S. had adopted the idea. Yeah. Which sounds great, right? But before uh, we let ourselves think that they're all just like looking out for the best interests of these children, that they're these angel, guardian angel type companies. Oh, never. Let it be known... To those interested, that for many of the years, 
while this was happening, these companies were getting public service tax breaks for printing the images of children. Of course. On missing children on the side of their Money, buttons. money, money. It was all about saving money. And that or incentivized that was, companies. Maybe that was incentivized as like, hey, do it. You'll get this. Right. I mean, all in all, a good thing that happened, but still like perpetuated by money at the end of the day. Good, but not for the reasons you might think. Right. It's not altruistic. I mean, the first one that did it, maybe so. Like that, what is it called? You Anderson said Erickson. Da- Anderson Erickson, Dairy. Like you guys did it altruistically. I would say they were pure of heart. They yeah. were the. They were probably one of the only ones that were pure of heart. Um, but it didn't achieve the goal it mm-hmm. set out to accomplish. Uh, the sad reality is that this was not effective. Um, yeah. Despite what people may have assumed, or still assume today. Um, because of how common it was in the 80s. It just didn't work. In fact, one of the only children it actually helped was a little girl named Bonnie Lohman. Um, she was that famous story of she's the one who saw her own face on the side of a milk carton and didn't know she had been abducted. Yeah, yeah, I've read about her. And that was likely the main inspiration for the novel called The Face on the Milk Carton by Carolyn B. Cooney, which we will break down one day as a book report. <laughs> uh, Bonnie was... Among the very few, I don't know the number of kids actually it helped, but she was there was very, very few. Yeah. And the only reason why she was actually found, why it worked for her, is because she was just taken by her own mother and her stepfather. They were non-custodial. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just relatives. And they didn't hide her because they were raising her as their own kid, because they right. were her kid, or they she was their kid. And like when she when she saw her picture, eventually it got to the neighbors and they were like, Oh shit! You mean you got this yeah. from a milk carton? It, this is your baby picture? Okay, we're gonna call the police. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I feel like that does happen fairly often. I don't know the statistics either, so I shouldn't yeah. speak out of turn. But like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of cases of missing children are kidnapped by relatives. Oh no, that's um, very common. You're right. It's usually either well. Child, all crimes against children, not all, most crimes against children, the higher number there yes. is usually a relative of some kind. It's somebody who doesn't have custody. Same thing with SA, everything. Yeah, exactly. SA. I was going to say, what was that? Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> You're getting That's there. <laughs> usually like in within the home by a relative, somebody that they trust, somebody that they know very well. Mm-hmm. And like stranger abductions are actually very rare. It's a very, very rare. And yet we are all terrified of it. And yet <laughs> it fueled the fear of America during this time. So yeah, Bonnie's case was pretty- Yeah, most others weren't that lucky. And many are still missing today, yeah. uh, 30 plus years later. Man. A concern did arise. Um, this is more of the psychological, sociological aspect um, that I thought was interesting. Uh, the concern did arise that seeing so many, like the faces of so many like missing children would be a frightening and potentially scarring experience for a lot of young kids. Um, like sitting there, eating their morning bowl of cereal, trying to read the back of the cereal box and not take too many glances over at the sad, smiling face of the missing kid, mm-hmm. you know, who would like mysteriously vanish. Because if it happened to that kid, then it could happen to me, right? Yeah, that's my personality in a nutshell. That would 100% affect me. Yeah. <laughs> I was uh, made afraid by the public service announcement about not knowing where your kids were. Right. <laughs> I mean, I remember it was kind of a lore. It was like, you guys know that they put the pictures of missing kids on milk cartons, right? Like around school. And it was mm-hmm. like, I've never seen that. Is that real? Yeah, I've seen it. And it was like, oh, really? Yeah. Where? I want to see it. Like it was this whole thing. Because it was still around in the early 90s. Yeah. But by the time we were in like elementary school, yeah, it wasn't as popular. Yeah. 
I don't know how common that actually was, but what it did do, like I was saying, it's, it wasn't helpful in actually finding lost children. What it did do was popularize the concept of stranger danger, which has permeated and saturated our culture. Even with all the movies and the PSAs and the news reports, it was the ominous, haunting image of a missing child's face on the side of a milk carton that was decidedly the most effective scare tactic in raising awareness for not only the number of missing children, but also helping to broaden the general definition of what a missing child constituted, from runaways to non-custodial kidnappings to stranger abductions, Mm -hmm. as well as promoting this concept of stranger danger to the point that it became a household term then and is still used today when referencing any sort of unfamiliar person who makes you uncomfortable. That's right. I say it all the time. It's become almost a joke today. Yeah. It's a lark. It, uh, yeah. But it used to be a very real fear. I started to mention this earlier, and I feel like we've now arrived at the stranger danger point to say- Here we are. That yes. I vi- vividly, very vividly remember my mom like drilling it into my head because I mentioned earlier the animals were very effective um, as a tool on me in general. I just love animals. Yeah. So my mom's fear was not so much that I would like take candy from a stranger, like luring me into a van or something. My mom- I don't know where she saw it or got the idea or some like saw it on the news. Like mm-hmm. apparently it happened somewhere for my mom to think that she needed to prepare me for this, but she would always drill me just drill into my head. If somebody asks you to help find their puppy, like, or their kitten, like they're looking for a puppy, don't go with them. Mm-hmm. An adult will never ask you for help yeah. and really need help. Like right. she just made it very clear to me that that is not what's going on. Mm-hmm. Do not listen to that. And I remember being like four or five years old, like, uh, okay. I like, I didn't <laughs> quite get it, but I was like, but I want a pup. Like at the time, yes, puppy is appealing to me. I want to see a puppy. And she's like, mm-hmm. they say, do you want to see my puppy? Like, no, you don't want to see their puppy. And I'm like, but I do want to see their puppy. But I was beginning to understand <laughs> right. that it wasn't about the puppy, I guess, at that point. Right, it's not about the puppy. This is a right. trick. You're being tricked. And I mean, I was, you know, I, I got there eventually. I was pretty pretty smart and, you know, nervous kid. So once mm-hmm. it clicked for me when I was five, six, seven, I was like, oh, yeah, bad people would want to use the thing I love most against me. Um, that right. makes a lot of sense to me and continues to. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, my, the only thing I remember about stranger danger besides don't talk to strangers and like don't go with a stranger. My mom was like, if you're waiting for me after school, oh yes, and somebody walks up to you and they and they know your name, mm-hmm. and you don't know who they are. It doesn't matter. You don't go with they them. They say, mom sent me to pick you up today. She's like, I will never do Never that. listen. If I didn't tell you. Know. I was like, all right. Right. Okay. Yeah, I got that lecture too. Like she wouldn't put our names on our backpacks and stuff. Yeah. Same. My parents either. But mm-hmm. I think it's that kind of like, they were kind of exposed to so much of it. It was saturating every mm-hmm. every news article, everything. Everywhere. So they were very the much concerned that it could happen to us. Exactly. Stranger Danger was real. I mean, there was a Berenstain Bears book called Learn About Strangers, right? And I love Berenstain Bears. Me too. Like people still talk about Stranger Danger today. I'd say as a culture, we are much more aware of strangers nowadays than we were before the 80s and 90s, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, whether for better or worse is not for me to decide. Uh, all I know <laughs> is I don't trust anybody. I'm right? sure. I'm sure there were always <laughs> nefarious strangers, but in the there 50s, it was were. like, do do do. This is the first time people really thought about it. Right. Like, you know, mothers were hesitant to let their kids go play outside. 
Yeah. They didn't. Kids didn't want to go play outside. It was terrible. Right. scary. After dark, mm-hmm. be home by dark. Oh, be home by dark. You know? We all did that for this exact reason. This whole uh, milk carton program fell out of vogue by the time the 90s came along, which is why we didn't see a whole lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, probably mostly because the, these companies were you know, losing their tax breaks. Uh, and also right. because uh, around this was around the same time that companies were replacing paper cartons with plastic cartons. Yeah, um, paper makes sense. It, it, it only lingered around really until the Amber Alert system was created in 1996. And thank God because it is way more effective. Mm-hmm. It's now more likely that you will be found um, today because of the Amber Alert system, whereas before with the milk carton system and before that with no system at all, um, it was almost It impossible. was more likely that you would not be found ever or ever seen again. Yep. But now it's like you have a high likelihood of actually being found. It's up by like 60, 70 something percent. It's crazy. Amber Alert plus internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. However, before the Amber Alert system, in these dark days of latch keys and milk cartons, there was one high-profile abduction that we need to talk about. Jacob Wetterling. And if you know any true crime, you probably know about this abduction. Mm-hmm. He was 11 years old, and he was taken from the dead-end street he lived on in the small town of St. Joseph, Minnesota. The story of how this happened was so scary that even with the constant barrage of missing children's faces on milk cartons and seemingly regular stories on the news of child abductions and child murders, people considered this story to be the stuff nightmares are made of. To give you an idea of the far-reaching cultural effect this had on that generation, Jacob's kidnapping is one of the main reasons why season one of Stranger Things, the epitome of 80s nostalgia, was centered around the plot point of Will Byers going missing. Mm -hmm. In fact, the manner in which Jacob was taken directly inspired certain visuals in the moments leading up to Will's disappearance in the pilot episode. And if you've seen it, you know the image of that dark figure in the street. Mm -hmm. And if you know Jacob's story, you know that that checks out, that lines up. And this is one of the most terrifying things that we actually know about. Because a lot of kids that went missing... They weren't seen. They just disappeared. Just, they yeah. just, you know, they disappeared. And that's that's scary enough. But Jacob wasn't alone when he was taken. Other kids saw it happen. And yeah. their account of what happened is what's so scary. God, that makes me so ill. So this is going to sound familiar to all of us because of the boom in 80s nostalgia and Stranger Things, right? It happened on Sunday, October mm. 22nd, 1989, around 9.20 p.m., Jacob his brother, and his friend, three boys, had gotten permission from Jacob's parents, who weren't home at the time, latchkey kids. Mm -hmm. They were at some get-together at a friend's house, the parents were. They got permission to ride their bikes to town, to the Tom Thumb, so they could rent a movie. When you used to have to go, Gen Z, when you used to have to go (laughs) to the store to rent a movie and bring it home, and you had it for like a day or a weekend. So much I could say about that. It was a dark strip of road with nothing but gravel driveways, cornfields, and woods. They wore reflective jackets and carried at least one flashlight. They'd be able to see any cars coming or going, and they'd be seen in return by these drivers. In fact, many of their friends and neighbors said they saw the boys traveling up and down the road that night. They should have been safe. On their way home, it had gotten dark, so it was harder to see, even with all the precautions, the figure of a man stepped out of the cornfield. 
and into the road. He was dressed in all black, his face was covered, and he was walking toward them. I won't go into too many details here because it's really awful. Um, Yeah. And terrifying. But he told the three boys he had a gun. He said, stop, turn around, close your eyes. And he told Jacob's brother and Jacob's friend to run off. Don't look back or I'll shoot. Mm. So they did that. Of course. There were little boys. When they felt like they were a safe enough distance, they looked back to see what was happening. And just like that, the man and Jacob had vanished from sight. Jacob was gone and he was never seen again. Vomit. The man who did it, he confessed 27 years later. Um, so we know who did it now. Man. But I think that was back in 2016 or something like that. It was when he confessed. Almost 30 years. Wow. Um, but I won't get into all that. If you want to know more about this, go listen to the podcast I talked about a minute ago called In the Dark. Their, see, their first season uh, covered this story in full detail, the full investigation. And it is one of the most amazing bits of podcasting, uh, investigative journalism I, I've ever heard. Wow. It's on par with Serial for me, season one. Mm-hmm. This podcast is one of the main reasons why we have this podcast, ours. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, when I listened to this years ago for the first time, it opened my eyes to uh, a lot of the darkness of the 80s and like how it inspired many of the common tropes in the entertainment we consumed as children. I remember you talking about this podcast in that conversation we mentioned earlier. Yes, exactly. So all this ties in. And I'm sorry it's so dark, but we're getting there. Long story short, because crimes against children have become so rampant uh, throughout those times, law enforcement on the uh, uh, Jacob Wetterling case, they knew that his abduction was probably sexually motivated. Um, So they got to thinking, man, how great would it be if we could just look up all the convicted sex offenders in the area, figure out which ones had committed crimes against children, and then, you know, just uh, go ask them uh, what they were doing the night Jacob was, you know, abducted, right? That's a great idea, don't you think? Yeah. Can we just, yeah. Can we look them all up at one time? That'd yeah, be just, awesome. just like That's doo, the doo, place doo, you doo, begin. Doo, computer noises and boom. <laughs> the concept of a sex offender registry was nothing new, um, but not every state had one because they weren't federally mandated. It wasn't a common thing. You might have one if you were a state, but it doesn't mean you kept up with it very well. Um, and uh, Minnesota didn't have one. Mm. Um, bless her heart, Jacob's mom, Patty. What a saint of a it's woman. It's always the victims. Families. It's always the families. Exactly. Change the change the world for everybody else. Patty used her involvement with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to start making strides toward establishing this sort of a uh, federally mandated registry, right? Mandate for a registry. The Jacob Wetterling Act was introduced in 1993 in Congress by a Minnesota rep, which was originally intended to only be used by law enforcement. It was never meant to be made available to the public. Mm. Interesting. The bill said that each state would have to verify the address of sex offenders living in that state each year and maintain a registry. Very simple. Just, you know, the same kind of thing. You get pulled over by a cop. He can look up your record and see, you know, how many traffic violations you have or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's not public knowledge. People don't need to know that about you. No. So this is what it's supposed to be just for law enforcement. That's it. However, before the bill could be finalized. A seven-year-old girl named Megan Kanka became the victim of a previously convicted sex offender who happened to live just across the street from her. Um, The big detail there 
One is that he was already convicted. He had been arrested for it before. But the parents said, we didn't know he was a sex offender. Mm -hmm. So before the Jacob Wetterling Act could be passed, the the bill, before the bill was finalized, Mm. they added a line kind of against Patty's wishes, but she gave in because it was really add this or you or you don't get to have this act passed. Mm-hmm. So she was like, okay, sure. It added a line stating that law enforcement may notify the community upon release of a sex offender back into the public. So this bill was passed in 1994 as the Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children Registration Act. But in 1996, Megan's law was passed. And this took the notification as a voluntary act and made it mandatory. So now law enforcement had to notify communities when they were going to release a sex offender into the public. Mm -hmm. This not only perpetuates stranger danger, but it strengthens it. Because now people can know when a sex offender is living among them. And suffice to say, most people have always had a hard time differentiating between a sex offender and a sexual predator. Big difference. Mm -hmm. From there, and we're getting very close to making our point. Hang in there. (laughs) From there, the restrictions against, or the restrictions placed against the rights of sex offenders grew ever more extreme throughout the 90s. It told you where you could live, where you could go, and what you could do. Mm -hmm. Most of the, or one of the most macabre examples that I am personally obsessed with is known as the no candy law. We've discussed this many times. Yes, we have discussed this many times. It specifically pertains to how a sex offender, no matter what offense they may have committed, how they must behave on Halloween night. I'm just going to read these examples of what you can do on Halloween night or what you shouldn't do. Ready? Mm -hmm. You should not go with a child to trick-or-treat or attend any function where children are gathered, even if it's a private residence. You are not allowed to put on masks or costumes. Mm. You should not place any Halloween decorations either inside or outside of your home. Wow. Not even inside. How would they know? Well, they come do checks. They come do routine checks. I guess. Okay, yeah. Your porch lights should be off. Front doors and blinds slash drapes closed on Halloween night. Yep. No member of your family is allowed to open doors to trick-or-treaters. Yep. You are not allowed to give treats or candy to any children or attend any home or location involving the distribution of treats on Halloween night. This, as well, covers anyone who lives with you in your registered place of residence. You are not allowed to have a party at your home on Halloween night. You should not go to hayrides, haunted houses, corn mazes, or any other activity associated with Halloween. Anything that I love, really. Anything that I love, right? If I had public urination charge or anything like that, (laughs) I could never enjoy Halloween ever again. I'd be screwed. That is wild. Well, don't do that. You should stay in your home on Halloween night or attend an educational program with your parole officers if required to do so. The only exception to this rule involves a situation where you have to be somewhere else for a just cause, for instance, for medical or, or employment emergencies. And last... Post a sign in your front yard that says no candy or treats at this residence or some variation of that uh, statement. Wow. The main thing we discussed before, you and me, Kaylin. Yes. Is our sort of subliminal, subconscious, and yet very obvious and conscious fear yes. of dark houses on Halloween. Yes. Because this wasn't passed a real until, uh, what was it, 96? 96. So we were trick-or-treating by this point. I was five. 
We were, yeah. you were what, four, four or five? Yeah. We were just beginning to really get into trick or treating and figure out what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And it was just pounded into my head by my mom. If there's a dark house with no lights on, don't go, there. Don't go knock on that door. Don't go anywhere yeah. near a dark house. And I didn't know why. They never explained why. No. I think their reason was they don't want trick-or-treaters. They don't want to be bothered. Yes. Don't bother them. They don't want to be bothered. And honestly, that's kind of more the the angle that my parents took with it. To this mm-hmm. day, I have no idea if they realized this. Mm. I think it was just kind of perpetuated in the community. And then it trickled down to me. And I never maybe. quite understood why. Like, I think maybe because they didn't. But see, that's the thing. How much did they actually consciously know? Right. No idea. Almost doesn't matter. It's almost creepy. It had the same effect. That it, yeah. it, it, it like infiltrated, it seeped in right. into our culture and into their understanding of the danger. Like it was just something ominous and dangerous about a dark house. Man. And it's because sex offenders had to have their houses completely dark and terrifying looking on Halloween, right? Those are the scariest mm-hmm. houses. I still don't like coming home to my house at night and seeing it dark. Me neither. Like it still bothers me to see a dark house. Same. It just looks Same. wrong that all your lights are off and all your blinds are shut yep. and you can't see in, no sign of life. Something seems off. Yeah. Yeah. That Super definitely stupid. has always bothered me too. I just, I love that detail. As terrible as it is, it sticks, it sticks in my macabre. It's horrible. Dark understanding yeah. of like, it's, it's, for me, it's a bit of, it's a, something I can use in fiction and it's, right. it's part of my understanding of the, the, it's Halloween. It's already a dark, spooky day. It's, Mm-hmm. There's already so much lore about Halloween night, and this just adds to that lore. It's just something that all of us in that generation may or may not know, but we know it. Like, yeah. we know what we're doing, but we may or may not know why. Yeah. Like, that is a very much, like, in the zeitgeist, yeah. as you said earlier. Like, it's, it's subliminal, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a general common understanding, and mm-hmm. it's just so disturbing to look back at. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, so... Now we're coming to our close. Here we go. In 1990, Congress passed the Children's Television Act that forced the FCC to regulate advertisement in children's programming. So 1990, a year before I was born. Okay. There was also a call for more educational and informative content as well. Now, there couldn't be commercial, there couldn't be a commercial for a toy airing uh, during an episode of the show the toy was based on. Wow. So G.I. Joe's formula was to have, here's G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. now it's a commercial break, here's an action figure, buy the G.I. Joe action figure. Yeah, it makes it real easy, almost too easy, doesn't it? <laughs> almost too easy. There also had to be a clear separation between the show and the commercial, mm-hmm. telling kids that the show was pausing and the commercials were about so to this begin. This is when the bumpers came back. The bumpers, right, for Nickelodeon and Cartoon okay. Network, which those were brilliant pieces of advertising because mm-hmm. they were like, you know what we can do? We can advertise for our other TV shows. Yeah. Cartoon Network used the cartoon characters and be like, cool, commercial break. Yep. I mean, it was, they they made the bumpers their own commercials. Well, Disney Channel, I will, um, I, I mean, it wasn't exactly a bumper, but I'm going to take a tiny Disney Channel detour because I know that this, mm-hmm. you know, you may not have quite been on the Disney Channel train, but around the time that I was, oh, I didn't this have was. It. We didn't watch it. Yeah. I didn't have it until I moved when I was 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. So I got it later. But the Disney Channel wand where they draw the Mickey in the corner, it was always that you're watching yes. Disney Channel. And that was your signal. They didn't expressly say, like, now a word from our advertisers mm-hmm. or now right. after these messages. they That was a bumper to say, now we're getting back to the show. Right. Versus, you know, it, it was something that wasn't – and it was usually actors mm-hmm. from the other shows on the network. Yes. So you're watching – 
I don't know, Lizzie McGuire, and you get a, you're watching Disney Channel from Shia LaBeouf from even Stevens. Yes. In between. Yes. So that it it made your brain say, okay, this isn't Lizzie McGuire anymore. This is mm-hmm. now a, a commercial break. It was this unspoken understanding. I'm sure that derived from this. Yeah. Well, I, I think these networks were going, hmm, how can we be creative? How can we do something that isn't? We'll be back after these messages. Mm-hmm. How can we tell kids it's, it's a commercial break without telling them it's a commercial break? And that's where the bumpers came from. And I mean, that you're watching Disney Channel thing. Perfect. Is like everybody on TikTok now and in general, like you know what that is. You're watching Disney Channel and you draw the little. It, it's visceral. You feel it. And then it's right? like, do, 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 do. Like it's a very specific jingle and everything. And it, it triggers me now when I see it or hear it. I'm like, my show's coming on. You know, yeah. like it's that, that signal. That excitement. Pavlovian. Pavlovian. <sighs> Nickelodeon used it when they were, like a lot of the uh, commercials I found for SNCC. I've been trying to find commercials for like sound bites. Mm-hmm. A lot of the commercials, the promos for SNCC were commercial bumpers. Yes. They're very small snippets, but they're it's, like, SNCC, they, coming Saturday They night. ended up, it's really funny because it almost ended up backfiring that these bumpers that are kind of meant to make advertising more ethical, mm-hmm. they themselves turned into advertising. Exactly. Which is an excellent example of American society. I know. It's so great. Um, So, in short, the content we grew up on was literally created for us, catered to us, because major corporations knew that they could make money off of us, right? Of course. And it worked. Mm -hmm. And our parents let us watch this television and all this programming, and we were happy to do so. And now... Because they mastered the art of children's programming. I mean, absolutely perfected it. We are nostalgic for content that was massively commerce-driven. Yep. But would I change anything knowing what I know (laughs) about all this? That's a question I'm not sure I'm ready to answer, to be honest. Because, like, it's part of our upbringing, right? This This is our understanding of how the world works. And we don't know how it would have been different without those elements. Yeah. Because when you think about it, it was all about money. If that wasn't allowed to happen, able to happen, how much money, effort, et cetera, would have even gone into children's programming? Right. Would there have ever been, you know, a Nickelodeon, a Cartoon Network? Would that have ever become what it was and then therefore been what it was to us if, if there wasn't that, like, commercial incentive? Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. So as much as we might hate it or, like, be – our whole life, you know, we we talk about it all the time, like – the way that we're disillusioned by capitalism in America as, you know, people our age. Mm-hmm. But it started from birth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For not just us, but generations and generations before us. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to hate everything about your childhood. You know, yeah. you can't. It's just, it's 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 so, it's too intrinsically tied together mm-hmm. to separate it out and to know, you know, whether you would change it. Exactly. Because it, it wouldn't be what we love if we changed it mm-hmm. at all. It's like saying you wouldn't go back and change something that happened to you in the past because it made you who you right. are. Right, pretty much. That it's a big thing to say, like, I wish I could change that. Well, you shouldn't because you could change completely. Everything else. It's, Everything else. Hasn't anybody ever seen Back to the Future? <laughs> <laughs> All I can say is, thankfully, we as 90s kids had networks such as Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon who seemed to care somewhat for our adolescent well-being and whose origins we will cover in future episodes. But our main point today is how all of this fear and this exposure to such extreme reality influenced not only the sorts of content found in all of the children's programming Mm -hmm. following this era of history, Mm -hmm. but also how it darkened the collective unconscious. Here we go. This 
stranger danger fear bled into most of children's horror throughout the 80s and 90s, which by then was a new genre. Mm -hmm. Many, if not most of the villains, are adults who prey on children. To provide an example, of the 13 episodes in the first season of Are You Afraid of the Dark, Mm -hmm. 10 of those episodes featured adults who preyed on children. 10 of 13. And it doesn't just stop there. I mean, so many of the shows and films we're going to cover on our podcast feature adults who prey on children. It is one of the most common themes and tropes used throughout all all of this era, all of this entire generation. Still to this day, villains are adults, heroes are children. Yeah, this is a whole other- It's crazy. And it's it's all of the content came from that, pretty much. All the content that we want to cover on this podcast, essentially, derives from- the stranger danger fear of the 80s i was gonna say earlier discussing like latchkey kids Mm -hmm. the prime example in my mind of a latchkey kid in the 90s is hey arnold absolutely and i mean a lot of the cartoons in the 90s um i literally as you were talking earlier i next to me i have a post-it note from like weeks ago and i scribbled over top of it Mm -hmm. and wrote down to point out the fact that all of the uh, protagonists in 90s cartoons are so independent. They're all latchkey kids. Like, parents are in the background of everything that oh, we watched oh. as kids. Yeah. I think that comes in part from exactly what you're saying here with that that kind of culture being the, the primary place we were all living yeah. and the families were living in at the time. But I think it's also the way that the animators of these shows grew up. Yeah. If... We're watching this in the 90s being animated by 20-somethings who grew up in the late 70s and through the 80s. Mm-hmm. They were latchkey kids. They, they could have been from the mid-60s and still be latchkey kids. Right, right. Yeah, you're absolutely on point there. I didn't think about how they were all latchkey kids. I think about that a lot, my friends and I, discussing this stuff. Mm-hmm. Where were the parents? They, right. you know, The show wouldn't be interesting to watch if the parents were <laughs> saving their butt all the time. Like It was... Kids just most of the ep- episodes we've recorded so far are uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark? We're about halfway through the first season, but yeah, all these episodes, these kids running around doing whatever they want, and we keep yeah, going, Where are, where are their, their parents? parents? Like, what's they're at work. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on, they're yeah. all latchkey kids, and it's just a question that's really never answered unless they're like, We're going to dinner, be back later. But it's always when kids are left alone, yeah. And I mean, it's art imitates life, like, that's just always going to be a thing, always. so it's not like this is a whoa, unique. Like conclusion mm-hmm. to draw, but it's still true, and mm-hmm. it's important to say the content wouldn't have been the same if it weren't for this culture. Absolutely, thank you. You just like tied that all up nice in a, in a nice bow. Oh, I yeah. love that. You know. <laughs> so, to conclude, mm-hmm. the main takeaway from the darkness and the danger of the '80s, as it fed into the '90s, parents were okay with children watching more and more TV because it meant they were home, and inside, and safe. It was all right because they had the TV to entertain them for a few hours. There were Hot Pockets and Bagel Bites and Pizza Rolls and Microwave Popcorn and all kinds of junk food, you name it, that were so simple to prepare, even a child could do it. Mm -hmm. Microwaves and toaster ovens. Kids had everything they needed because they were safe as long as they kept the doors locked, didn't answer the door for anyone, and didn't go outside. Didn't matter that children were becoming pre-diabetic or developing attention deficit issues. It didn't matter because they were safe. Mm -hmm. And nobody wanted anything more than for their children to be safe. Mm -hmm. It was a sigh of relief 
to know where your children were. To know where they were. And although relief is the greatest feeling, it allows for complacency. Parents settled. Mm -hmm. Accepting it as better than the alternative. Mm -hmm. And a lot of children were just as okay with that because the programming was being catered directly to them, reminding them that although the world is dangerous, in here, with us, you're safe. Damn. And that's all I've got for you. <laughs> Damn. That's all I've got for you. I mean, bravo. That that sums it up. Thank you. That um, was my thesis statement. The content was telling you the world is dangerous mm -hmm. and watch more of our content and you'll be safe. Mm -hmm. And that was an excellent compromise for parents and children. Absolutely. We're here. We're watching. All of this whole thing, all this, you know, I don't know that the entertainment was so much like, ah, we have to strike fear to the hearts of our children so that they'll be safe. I think it raised awareness much like the milk carton kids did. I think it was a lot of like, this might be effective, but really we're just going to scare the shit out of you. Right. Um, I think a lot of the children's programming and the entertainment, especially like Are You Afraid of the Dark and Horror, they just wanted to scare kids. Yeah. They just wanted to scare you. And so they thought, what are some of the scariest things we can think of? Hmm, adults who prey on children. Right. That just happened last decade. Let's make it happen now, but in fiction. I mean, and there's something to be said about the fact that kind of there, there has always been a fascination in society with being scared. Everybody likes to be scared, mm -hmm. but know that they're safe. Everyone. And that Everyone. never, you know, that was never more prevalent than in 90s. Yeah, the 90s culture, the, the entertainment. Entertainment. Exactly. If if you're scared, but it's not real, right. like the real dangers are out there. But yeah, like you said, in here, it's all right on your screen. It's all okay. And you can go to bed safe at night and you're not worried about these villains. You're safe in your bed. Yeah. Which didn't actually happen because we were all terrified of the villains. Yeah, right. And it made our beds scarier. It made our closets <laughs> scarier. Yeah, but there were other things to be afraid of in the home. Um, <laughs> but uh, R.L. Stein said that. His main thing was he said, uh, scare them while reminding them that they're still safe. Mm -hmm. Like it was never like, don't ever let them feel like they're, they're losing control. You mm -hmm. have to make sure they know they're in control of the story, which I think is why he probably started doing a lot of the um, like choose your own adventure goosebumps books. I think, right. I think once that became a thing, he was like, oh, there, there gets to be an element of control to it. And yeah, we're going to cover goosebumps, uh, at least the TV series. Eventually. Mm -hmm. I don't know about the books. There's so many. Maybe maybe we'll do like hit the highlights or something. Ooh. Yes. So anyway, yeah, that's all I've got. And I'm sorry that was so much and took so wow. long to get here. Um, but that all of this directly affects everything we're going to be covering everything that we are talk on this about. podcast. And every mm -hmm. time we talk about how dark it was or this adult was so scary to this kid and why was it always an adult preying on a child – now we know why. And everything that we yeah. reference in specific episodes that we're going to be covering will be hearkening back to mm -hmm. all of this information. The fear will make a lot more sense. We have context. And granted, Christian and I both had general knowledge of these things, but having him outline it, I think, is really helpful because it helps as we're preparing and learning and discussing. So you may not mm -hmm. hear as much of these callbacks in the first episodes that we did because we didn't have it outlined for us um but now we do so right we've already recorded a few it's things that we knew but we you know we didn't we'd forgotten that we knew them basically exactly and i learned so much more just doing this research because this was i had uh bits and pieces of this information in my brain mm -hmm. i didn't have all of this information i had to go research it but now we we all together collectively have it all together in front of us collectively. and we're gonna approach 
you know, this podcast with this understanding, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Love that. So don't worry. You may get scared, but you're safe. You're with you're us. You're safe. That's why, that's why we say, you know, grab your flashlights and join us because we are exploring. We are trying to uncover. We are trying to shine a light into these dark rooms and figure out what's in there. It may be not Right. What happened? Why did it happen? Why did exactly. it affect us the way that it did? We're excited to keep exploring all of this and learning alongside you. You know, we're, we're uncovering yeah. things as we're telling them to you. But hopefully this sheds light on, like, all the conversations that I've had with my friends over the years of, like, why was it like this? And just yes. the moments of complete shock at some things that we see in children's entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, having that cultural background helps a lot mm-hmm. in figuring out. Yeah, it answers out. your question, like, they why? made this for kids? Yes. Right. So anyway, thanks for listening. We will have another episode out next week. Yeah, we can't wait to talk with you again. And as always, yeah, contact us. Let us know all your... Absolutely. If you have insights into this that we didn't touch on. Right. Whatever your advertising class at your school told you about, (laughs) tell us. Yeah, what about this did you find interesting and what do you want to add to this conversation? Because we're going to hopefully build on this. Like for all I know, I'll do another episode like this one day when there's more to break down if somebody says hey look into this That'd be cool. it might shed some more light or jumping forward even and looking at yeah, how the internet honestly, affected anything it. to do with this anything about this let us know and uh again yeah tell us what you want to hear about uh what about your childhood you know freaked you out so uh yeah thanks and uh we'll see you next time yeah thanks guys okay bye thanks for listening to that's pretty dark written and produced by christian baxter mott and kaylin andrews our music is composed by jonathan simmons and our art is provided by Paige Garland at Power Girl Illustration. Join the collective nostalgia and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at That's Pretty Dark Podcast. Share your experiences and let us know what shows, films, or villains still haunt you from childhood at That's Pretty Dark Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, you're never really alone. So until next time, sweet dreams, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>